Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville, Part 11. Chapter 74, The Sperm Whale's Head, Contrasted View. Here now are two great whales laying their heads together. Let us join them and lay together our own. Of the grand order of folio leviathans, the sperm whale and the right whale are by far the most noteworthy. They are the only whales regularly hunted by man. To the Nantucketer, they present the two extremes of all the known varieties of the whale. As the external difference between them is mainly observable in their heads, and as the head of each is at this very moment hanging from the Pequod's side, and as we may freely go from one to the other by merely stepping across the deck, where, I should like to know, would you obtain a better chance to study practical cetology than here? In the first place, you are struck by the general contrast between these heads. Both are massive enough in all conscience, but there is a certain mathematical symmetry in the sperm whales which the right whales sadly lacks. There is more character in the sperm whale's head. As you behold it, you involuntarily yield the immense superiority to him. In point of pervading dignity, in the present instance too, this dignity is heightened by the pepper and salt color of his head at the summit, giving token of advanced age and large experience. In short, he is what the fishermen technically call a gray-headed whale. Let us now note what is least dissimilar in these heads, namely the two most important organs, the eye and the ear. Far back on the side of the head and low down near the angle of either whale's jaw, if you narrowly search, you will see a lashless eye, which you would fancy to be a young colt's eye. So out of all proportion is it to the magnitude of the head. Now, from this peculiar sideways position of the whale's eyes, it is plain that he can never see an object which is exactly ahead, nor more than he can see one exactly astern. In a word, the position of the whale's eyes corresponds to that of a man's ears, and you may fancy for yourself how it would fare with you did you sideways survey objects through your ears. You would find that you could only command some 30 degrees of vision in advance of the straight sideline of your sight, and about 30 more behind it. If your bitterest foe were walking straight towards you with dagger uplifted in broad day, you would not be able to see him any more than if he were stealing up upon you from behind. In a word, you would have two backs, so to speak, but at the same time also two fronts. Side fronts? From what is it that makes the front of a man? What, indeed, but 
his eyes. Moreover, while in most other animals I can now think of, the eyes are so planted as imperceptibly to blend their visual power so as to produce one picture and not two to the brain, the peculiar position of the whale's eyes, ineffectually divided as they are by many cubic feet of solid head which towers between them like a great mountain separating two lakes in valleys, this of course must wholly separate the impressions which each independent organ imparts. The whale, therefore, must see one distinct picture on this side and another distinct picture on that side, while all between must be profound darkness and nothingness to him. May man, in effect, be said to look out on the world from a sentry box with two joined sashes for his window. But with the whale, these two sashes are separately inserted, making two distinct windows, but sadly impairing the view. This peculiarity of the whale's eyes is a thing always to be borne in mind in the fishery and to be remembered by the reader in some subsequent scenes. A curious and most puzzling question might be started concerning this visual matter as touching the leviathan, but I must be content with a hint. So long as a man's eyes are open to the light, the act of seeing is involuntary, that is, he cannot then help mechanically seeing whatever objects are before him. Nevertheless, any one's experience will teach him that though he can take in an undiscriminating sweep of things in one glance, it is quite impossible for him, attentively and completely, to examine any two things, however large or however small, at one and the same instant of time, never mind if they lie side by side and touch each other. But if you come now to separate those two objects and surround each by a circle of profound darkness, then in order to see one of them in such a manner as to bring your mind to bear on it, the other will be utterly excluded from your contemporary consciousness. How is it then with the whale? True, both of his eyes in themselves must simultaneously act, but is his brain so much more comprehensive, combining and subtle than man's, that he can, at the same moment of time, attentively examine two distinct prospects, one on one side of him and the other in an exactly opposite direction? If he can, then it is as marvelous a thing in him as if a man were able simultaneously to go through the demonstrations of two distinct problems in Euclid. Nor, strictly investigated, is there any incongruity in this comparison. It may be but an idle whim, but it has always seemed to me that the extraordinary vacillations of movement displayed by some whales when beset by three or four boats, the timidity and liability to queer frights so common to such whales, I think that this all indirectly proceeds from the helpless perplexity of volition in which their divided and diametrically opposite powers of vision must involve them. But the ear of the whale is full as curious as the eye. If you are an entire stranger to their race, you might hunt over their heads for hours and never discover that organ. The ear has no external leaf whatever, and into that hole itself you can hardly insert a quill, so wondrously minute is it. It is lodged a little behind the eye. With respect to their ears, this important difference is to be observed between the sperm whale and the right. While the ear of the former has an external opening, that of the latter is entirely and evenly covered over with a membrane so as to be quite imperceptible from without. Is it not curious that so vast a being as the whale should see the world through so small an eye and hear the thunder through an ear which is smaller than a hare's? 
But if his eyes were broad as the lens of Herschel's great telescope and his ears capacious as the porches of cathedrals, would that make him any longer of sight or sharper of hearing? Not at all. Why then do you try to enlarge your mind? Subtilize it. Let us now, with whatever levers and steam engines we have at hand, cant over the sperm whale's head that it may lie bottom up, then, ascending by a ladder to the summit, have a peep down the mouth. And, were it not that the body is now completely separated from it, with a lantern we might descend into the great Kentucky mammoth cave of his stomach. But let us hold on here by this tooth, and look about us where we are. What a really beautiful and chaste-looking mouth! From floor to ceiling, lined, or rather papered, with a glistening white membrane, glossy as bridal satins. But come out now and look at this portentous lower jaw, which seems like the long, narrow lid of an immense snuff-box, with the hinge at one end, instead of one side. If you pry it up so as to get in overhead and expose its rows of teeth, it seems a terrific portcullis, and such, alas, it proves to many a poor white in the fishery upon whom these sparks fall with impaling force. But... Far more terrible is it to behold when, fathoms down in the sea, you see some sulky whale floating there suspended with his prodigious jaw, some fifteen feet long, hanging straight down at right angles with his body, for all the world like a ship's jib-boom. This whale is not dead, he is only dispirited, out of sorts, perhaps hypochondriac, and so supine that the hinges of his jaw have relaxed leaving him there in that ungainly sort of plight, a reproach to all his tribe, who must no doubt imprecate lockjaws upon him. In most cases, this lower jaw, being easily unhinged by a practiced artist, is disengaged and hoisted on deck for the purpose of extracting the ivory teeth and furnishing a supply of that hard white whalebone with which the fishermen fashion all sorts of curious articles including canes, umbrella stocks, and handles to riding whips. With a long, weary hoist, the jaw is dragged on board as if it were an anchor, and when the proper time comes, some few days after the other work, Queequeg, Dago, and Tashtigo, being all accomplished dentists, are set to drawing teeth. With a keen cutting spade, Queequeg lances the gums, then the jaw is lashed down to ring bolts, and a tackle being rigged from aloft, they drag out these teeth, as Michigan oxen drag stumps of old oaks out of wild woodlands. There are generally 42 teeth in all, in old whales much worn down, but undecayed, nor filled after our artificial fashion. The jaw is afterwards sawn into slabs and piled away like joists for building houses. Chapter 75. The Right Whale's Head. Contrasted View. Crossing the deck, let us now have a good long look at the right whale's head. As, in general shape, the noble sperm whale's head may be compared to a Roman war chariot, especially in front when it is so broadly rounded, so, as a broad view, the right whale's head bears a rather inelegant resemblance to a gigantic galliot-toed shoe. Two hundred years ago, an old Dutch voyager likened its shape to that of a shoemaker's last, and in this same last, or shoe, that old woman of the nursery tale with the swarming brood might very comfortably be lodged she and all her progeny. But as you come nearer to this great head, it begins to assume different aspects according to your point of view. 
if you stand on its summit and look at these two F-shaped spout holes, you would take the hole for an enormous bass vial, and these spiracles the apertures in its sounding board. Then again, if you fix your eye upon this strange, crested, comb-like incrustation on the top of the mass, this green barnacled thing, which the Greenlanders call the crown, and the southern fishers the bonnet of the right whale, fixing your eyes solely on this, you would take the head for the trunk of some huge oak, with a bird's nest in the, its crotch. At any rate, when you watch those live crabs that nestle here in this bonnet, such an idea would be almost sure to occur to you, unless, indeed, your fancy has been fixed by the technical term crown also bestowed upon it. In which case, you will take great interest in thinking how this mighty monster is actually a diademed king of the sea whose green crown has been put together for him in this marvelous manner. But, if this whale be a king, he is a very sulky-looking fellow to grace a diadem. Look at that hanging lower lip. What a huge sulk and pout is there! A sulk and pout by carpenter's measurement about twenty feet long and five feet deep. A sulk and pout that will yield you some five hundred gallons of oil and more. A great pity now that this unfortunate whale should be hair-lipped. The fissure is about a foot across. Probably the mother, during an important interval, was sailing down the Peruvian coast when earthquakes caused the beach to gape. Over this lip, as over a slippery threshold, we now slide into the mouth. Upon my word, were I at Mackinac, I should take this to be the inside of an Indian wigwam. Good lord, is this the road that Jonah went? The roof is about twelve feet high and runs to a pretty sharp angle as if there were a regular ridge pole there, while these ribbed, arched, hairy sides present us with these wondrous half-vertical scimitar-shaped slats of whalebone, say three hundred on a side, which depending from the upper part of the head or crown bone form those Venetian blinds which have elsewhere been cursorily mentioned. The edges of these bones are fringed with hairy fibers through which the right whale strains the water and in whose intricacies he retains the small fish. When open-mouthed, he goes through the seas of Brit in feeding time. In the central blinds of bone, as they stand in their natural order, there are certain curious marks, curves, hollows, and ridges whereby some whalemen calculate the creature's age, as the age of an oak by its circular rings. Though the certainty of this criterion is far from demonstrable, yet it has the savor of analogical probability. At any rate, if we yield to it, we must grant a far greater age to the right whale than at first glance will seem reasonable. In old times, there seem to have prevailed the most curious fancies concerning these blinds. One voyager in Perkis calls them the wondrous whiskers inside of the whale's mouth. Footnote. This reminds us that the right whale really has a sort of whisker, or rather a mustache, consisting of a few scattered white hairs on the upper part of the outer end of the lower jaw. Sometimes these tufts impart a rather brigandish expression to his otherwise solemn countenance. End footnote. Another, hog's bristles. A third old gentleman in Hackfiat uses the following elegant language. There are about two hundred and fifty fins crowning on each side of his upper chop, which arch over his tongue and on each side of his mouth. As everyone knows, these same hogs bristles, fins, whiskers, blinds, or whatever you please, furnish to the ladies their busks and other stiffening contrivances. 
but in this particular the demand has long been in decline. It was in Queen Anne's time that the bone was in its glory, the farthingale being then all the fashion. And, as those ancient dames moved about gaily, though in the jaws of the whale, as you may say, even so, in a shower with the like thoughtlessness, do we nowadays fly under the same jaws for protection, the umbrella being a tent spread over the same bone. But now, forget about blinds and whiskers for a moment, and standing in the right whale's mouth, look around you afresh. Seeing all these colonnades of bones so methodically ranged about, would you not think you were inside of the great Harlem organ and gazing upon its thousand pipes? For a carpet to the organ we have a rug of the softest turkey, the tongue, which is glued, as it were, to the floor of the mouth. It is very fat and tender and apt to tear in pieces in hoisting it on deck. This particular tongue now before us, at a passing glance, I should say it was a six-barreler. That is, it will yield you about that amount of oil. Ere this, you must have plainly seen the truth of what I started with, that the sperm whale and the right whale have almost entirely different heads. To sum up, then, in the right whales there is no great well of sperm, no ivory teeth at all, no long slender mandible of a lower jaw like the sperm whales, nor in the sperm whale are there any of those blinds of bone, no huge lower lips, scarcely anything of a tongue. Again, the right whale has two external spout holes, the sperm whale only one. Look your last now on these venerable hooded heads while they yet lie together, for one will soon sink unrecorded in the sea, the other will not be very long in following. Can you catch the expression of the sperm whales there? It is the same he died with, only some of the longer wrinkles in the forehead seem now faded away. I think his broad brow to be full of a prairie-like placidity, born of a speculative indifference as to death. But mark the other head's expression. See that amazing lower lip pressed by accident against the vessel's side so as firmly to embrace the jaw. Does not this particular head seem to speak of an enormous practical resolution in facing death? This right whale I take to have been a Stoic, the sperm whale a Platonian, who might have taken up Spinoza in his later years. Chapter 76 The Battering Ram Ere quitting for the nonce the sperm whale's head, I would have you, as a sensible physiologist, simply, practically, remark its front aspect in all its compacted collectedness. I would have you investigate it now with the sole view of forming to yourself some unexaggerated, intelligent estimate of whatever battering ram power may be lodged there. Here is a vital point for you must either satisfactorily settle this matter with yourself, or forever remain an infidel as to one of the most appalling but not the less true events perhaps anywhere to be found in all recorded history. You observe that in the ordinary swimming position of the sperm whale, the front of his head presents an almost wholly vertical plane to the water. You observe that the lower part of that front slopes considerably backwards so as to furnish more of a retreat for the long socket which receives the boom-like lower jaw. You observe that the mouth is entirely under the head, much in the same way. Indeed, as though your own mouth were entirely under your chin. Moreover, 
you observe that the whale has no external nose, and what nose he has, his spout hole, is on the top of his head. You observe that his eyes and ears are at the sides of his head, nearly one-third of his entire length from the front. Wherefore, you must now have perceived that the front of the sperm whale's head is a dead, blind wall without a single organ or tender prominence of any sort whatsoever. Furthermore, you are now to consider that only in the extreme, lower, backward-sloping part of the front of the head is there even the slightest vestige of bone, and not till you get near twenty feet from the forehead do you come to the full cranial development, so that this whole enormous boneless mass is as one wad. Finally, though, as will soon be revealed, its contents partly comprise the most delicate oil, yet you are now to be appraised of the nature of the substance which so impregnably invests all that apparent effeminacy. In some previous place I have described to you how the blubber wraps the body of the whale as the rind wraps the orange, just so with the head. But with this difference, about the head, this envelope, though not so thick, is of a boneless toughness, inestimable by any man who has not handled it. The severest pointed harpoon, the sharpest lance darted by the strongest human arm, impotently rebounds from it. It is as though the forehead of the sperm whale were paved in horse's hooves. I do not think that any sensation lurks in it. Bethink yourself also of another thing. When two large, loaded Indiamen chance to crowd and crush towards each other in the docks, what do the sailors do? They do not suspend between them at the point of coming contact any merely hard substance like iron or wood. No, they hold there a large round wad of tow or cork, enveloped in the thickest and toughest of oxhide. That bravely and uninjured takes the jam which would have snapped all their oaken handspikes and iron crowbars. By itself, this sufficiently illustrates the obvious fact I drive at. But supplementary to this, it has hypothetically occurred to me that as ordinary fish possess what is called a swimming bladder in them capable at will of distension or contraction, and as the sperm whale, as far as I know, has no such provision in him, considering, too, the otherwise inexplicable manner in which he now depresses his head altogether beneath the surface, and anon swims with it high elevated out of the water, considering the unobstructed elasticity of its envelope, considering the unique interior of his head, it has hypothetically occurred to me, I say, that those mystical lung-celled honeycombs there may possibly have some hitherto unknown and unsuspected connection with the outer air, so as to be susceptible to atmospheric distension and contraction. If this be so, fancy the irresistibleness of that might, to which the most impalpable and destructive of all elements contributes. Now, mark, unerringly impelling this dead, impregnable, uninjurable wall and this most buoyant thing within, there swims behind it all the mass of tremendous life, only to be adequately estimated as piled wood is by the cord, and all obedient to one volition as the smallest insect. So that, when I shall hereafter detail to you all the specialities and concentrations of potency everywhere lurking in this expansive monster, when I shall show you some of his more inconsiderable braining feats, I trust you will have renounced all ignorant incredulity and be ready to abide by this. 
that though a sperm whale stove a passage through the Isthmus of Darien and mix the Atlantic with the Pacific, you would not elevate one hair of your eyebrow. For unless you own the whale, you are but a provincial and sentimentalist in truth. But clear truth is a thing for salamander giants only to encounter. How small the chances for the provincials, then? What befell the weakling youth lifted by the dread goddess's veil at Laos? Chapter 77. The Great Heidelberg Tun. Now comes the bailing of the case, but to comprehend it aright you must know something of the curious internal structure of the thing operated upon. Regarding the sperm whale's head as a solid oblong, you may, on an inclined plane, sideways divide it into two coins. Footnote. Coin is not a Euclidean term, it belongs to the pure nautical mathematics. I know not that it has been defined before. A coin is a solid which differs from a wedge in having its sharp end formed by the steep inclination of one side instead of the mutual tapering of both sides. End footnote. Whereof the lower is the bony structure forming the cranium and jaws, and the upper an unctuous mass wholly free from bones, its broad forward end forming the expanded vertical apparent forehead of the whale. At the middle of the forehead, horizontally subdivide this upper coin, and then you have two almost equal parts, which before were naturally divided by an internal wall of a thick tendinous substance. The lower subdivided part, called the junk, is one immense honeycomb of oil, formed by the crossing and recrossing into 10,000 infiltrated cells of tough elastic white fibers throughout the whole extent. The upper part, known as the case, may be regarded as the great Heidelberg tun of the sperm whale. And as that famous great tierce is mystically carved in front, so the whale's vast plated forehead forms innumerable strange devices for the emblematical adornment of his wondrous tun. Moreover, as that of Heidelberg was always replenished with the most excellent of the wines of the Rhenish valleys, so the tun of the whale contains by far the most precious of all his oily vintages namely, the high-prized spermaceti, in its absolutely pure, limpid, and odiferous state. Nor is this precious substance found unalloyed in any other part of the creature. Though in life it remains perfectly fluid, yet, upon exposure to the air after death, it soon begins to concrete, sending forth beautiful crystalline shoots as when the first thin, delicate ice is just forming in water. A large whale's case generally yields about 500 gallons of sperm, though from unavoidable circumstances considerable of it is spilled, leaks, and dribbles away, or is otherwise irrevocably lost in the ticklish business of securing what you can. I know not what fine and costly material the Heidelberg ton was coated within, but in superlative richness this coating could not possibly have compared with the silken pearl-colored membrane like the lining of a fine pelisse forming the inner surface of the sperm whale's case. It will have been seen that the Heidelberg ton of the sperm whale embraces the entire length of the entire top of the head, and since, as has been elsewhere set forth, the head embraces one-third of the whole length of the creature, that in setting that length down at 80 feet for a good-sized whale, you have more than 26 feet for the depth of the ton, when it is lengthwise hoisted up and down against a ship's side. As in decapitating the whale, the operator's instrument is brought close to the spot where an entrance is subsequently forced into the spermaceti magazine, he has, therefore, to be uncommonly heedful, lest a careless, untimely stroke should invade the sanctuary and wastingly let out its invaluable contents. 
It is this decapitated end of the head, also, which is the last elevated out of the water and retained in that position by the enormous cutting tackles, whose hempen combinations on one side make quite a wilderness of ropes in that quarter. Thus much being said, attend now, I pray you, to that marvelous and, in this particular instance, almost fatal operation whereby the sperm whale's great Heidelberg Tun is tapped. Chapter 78. Cistern and Buckets Nimble as a cat, Tashtigo mounts aloft and without altering his erect posture runs straight out upon the overhanging mainyard arm to the part where it exactly projects over the hoisted tun. He has carried with him a light tackle called a whip consisting of only two parts, traveling through a single sheaved block. Securing this block so that it hangs down from the yard arm, he swings one end of the rope till it is caught and firmly held by a hand on deck. Then, hand over hand, down the other part, the Indian drops through the air till dexterously he lands on the summit of the head. There, still high elevated above the rest of the company to whom he vivaciously cries, he seems some Turkish muezzin calling the good people to prayers from the top of a tower. A short-handled sharp spade being sent up to him, he diligently searches for the proper place to begin breaking into the tun. In this business he proceeds very heedfully like a treasure hunter in some old house, sounding the walls to find where the gold is masoned in. By the time this cautious search is over, a stout iron-bound bucket, precisely like a well bucket, has been attached to one end of the whip, while the other end, being stretched across the deck, is there held by two or three alert hands. These last now hoist the bucket within grasp of the Indian, to whom another person has reached up with a very long pole. Inserting this pole into the bucket, Tashtigo downward guides the bucket into the tun till it entirely disappears. Then, giving the word to the seaman at the whip, up comes the bucket again, all bubbling like a dairymaid's pail of new milk. Carefully lowered from its height, the full freighted vessel is caught by an appointed hand and quickly emptied into a large tub. Then, remounting aloft, it again goes through the same round until the deep cistern will yield no more. Towards the end, Tashtigo has to ram his long pole harder and harder and deeper and deeper into the tun until some twenty feet of the pole have gone down. Now, the people of the Pequod had been bailing some time in this way. Several tubs had been filled with the fragrant sperm when all at once a queer accident happened. Whether it was that Tashtigo, that wild Indian, was so heedless and reckless as to let go for a moment his one-handed hold on the great cable tackles suspending the head, or whether the place where he stood was so treacherous and oozy, or whether the evil one himself would have it fall out so without stating his particular reasons, how it was exactly there is no telling now, but on a sudden, as the 80th or 90th bucket came suckingly up, my god, poor Tashtigo, like the twin reciprocating bucket in a veritable well, dropped head first down into this great ton of Heidelberg, and with a horrible oily gurgling went clean out of sight. Man overboard, cried Dago, who amid the general consternation first came to his senses, swing the bucket this way, and putting one foot into it so as to better secure his slippery handhold on the whip itself, the hoisters ran him high up to the top of the head almost before Tashtigo could have reached its interior bottom. Meanwhile, there was a terrible tumult. Looking over the side, they saw the before lifeless head throbbing and heaving just below the surface of the sea, as if at that moment seized by some momentous idea, whereas it was only the poor Indian unconsciously revealing by those struggles the perilous depth to which he had sunk. 
At this instant, while Dago, on the summit of the head, was clearing the whip, which had somehow got foul of the great cutting tackles, a sharp cracking noise was heard, and to the unspeakable horror of all, one of the two enormous hooks suspending the head tore out, and with a vast vibration the enormous mass sideways swung till the drunk ship reeled and shook as if smitten by an iceberg. The one remaining hook, upon which the entire strain now depended, seemed every instant to be on the point of giving way, an event still more likely from the violent motions of the head. Come down! Come down! yelled the seaman to Dago, but with one hand holding on to the heavy tackles so that if the head should drop, he would still remain suspended, the negro, having cleared the foul line, rammed down the bucket into the now collapsed well, meaning that the buried harpooner should grasp it and so be hoisted out. In heaven's name, man! cried Stubb. Are you ramming home a cartridge there? Avast! How will that help him, jamming that iron-bound bucket on his top of his head? Avast, we! "'Stand clear of the tackle!' cried a voice like the bursting of a rocket. Almost in the same instant with a thunder boom, the enormous mass dropped into the sea, like Niagara's table rock into the whirlpool. The suddenly relieved hull rolled away from it to far down her glittering copper, and all caught their breath as half-swinging now over the sailors' heads and now over the water, Dago, through a thick mist of spray, was dimly beheld clinging to the pendulous tackles, while poor buried-alive Tashtigo was sinking utterly down to the bottom of the sea. But hardly had the blinding vapor cleared away when a naked figure with a boarding sword in his hand was for one swift moment seen hovering over the bulwarks. The next, a loud splash announced that my brave Queequeg had dived to the rescue. One packed rush was made to the side and every eye counted every ripple as moment followed moment and no sign of either the sinker or the diver could be seen. Some hands now jumped into a boat alongside and pushed a little off from the ship. Aha! cried Dago all at once from his now quiet swinging perch overhead, and looking further off the side we saw an arm thrust upright from the blue waves, a sight strange to see as an arm thrust forth from the grass over a grave. Both! Both! It is both! cried Dago again with a joyful shout, and soon after Queequeg was seen boldly striking out with one hand and with the other clutching the long hair of the Indian. Drawn into the waiting boat, they were quickly brought to the deck, but Tashtigo was long in coming too, and Queequeg did not look very brisk. Now, how had this noble rescue been accomplished? Why, diving after the slowly descending head, Queequeg, with his keen sword, had made side lunges near its bottom so as to scuttle a large hole there, then, dropping his sword, had thrust his long arm far inwards and upwards, and so hauled out poor Tash by the head. He averred that upon first thrusting in for him, a leg was presented, but well knowing that it was not as it ought to be and might occasion great trouble, he had thrust back the leg and by a dexterous heave and toss had wrought a somerset upon the Indian, so that with the next trial he came forth in a good old way, head foremost. As for the great head itself, that was doing as well as could be expected. And thus, through the courage and great skill and obstetrics of Queequeg, the deliverance, or rather delivery, of Tashtigo was successfully accomplished, in the teeth, too, of the most untoward and apparently hopeless impediments, which is a lesson by no means to be forgotten. Midwifery should be taught in the same course with fencing and boxing, riding and rowing. I know that this queer adventure of the gay headers will be sure to seem incredible to some landsmen, though they themselves may have either seen or heard of someone's falling into a cistern ashore, an accident which not seldom happens, 
and with much less reason to than the Indians, considering the exceeding slipperiness of the curb of the sperm whale's head. But, peradventure, it may be sagaciously urged, how is this? We thought the tissued, infiltrated head of the sperm whale was the lightest and most corky part about him, and yet thou makest it sink in an element of a far greater specific gravity than itself? We have thee there. Not at all, but I have ye, for at the time poor Tash fell in, the case had been nearly emptied of its lighter contents, leaving little but the dense, tendinous wall of the well, a double-welded, hammered substance, as I have said before much heavier than the seawater, and a lump of which sinks in it like lead almost. But the tendency to rapid sinking in this substance was in the present instance materially counteracted by the other parts of the head remaining undetached from it, so that it sank very slowly and deliberately indeed, affording Queequeg a fair chance for performing his agile obstetrics on the run, as you may say. Yes, it was a running delivery, so it was. Now, had Tashtigo perished in that head, it had been a very precious perishing, smothered in the very whitest and daintiest of fragrant spermaceti, coffined, hearsed, entombed in the secret inner chamber and sanctum sanctorum of the whale. Only one sweeter end can readily be recalled, the delicious death of an Ohio honey hunter who, seeking honey in the crotch of a hollow tree, found such exceeding store of it that, leaning too far over, it sucked him in so that he died embalmed. How many, think ye, have likewise fallen into Plato's honeyhead and sweetly perished there? Chapter 79 The Prairie to scan the lines of his face, or feel the bumps on the head of this leviathan, this is a thing which no physiognomist or phrenologist has yet undertaken. Such an enterprise would seem almost as hopeful as for Lavater to have scrutinized the wrinkles on the rock of Gibraltar, or for Gaul to have mounted a ladder and manipulated the dome of the Pantheon. Still, in that famous work of his, Lavater not only treats of the various faces of men, but also attentively studies the faces of horses, birds, serpents, and fish, and dwells in detail upon the modifications of expression discernible therein. Nor have Gall and his disciple Spernsheim failed to throw out some hints touching the phrenological characteristics of other beings than man. Therefore, though I am but ill-qualified for a pioneer in the application of these two semi-sciences to the whale, I will do my endeavor. I try all things. I achieve what I can. Physiognomically regarded, the sperm whale is an anomalous creature. He has no proper nose, and since the nose is the central and most conspicuous of the features, and since it perhaps most modifies and finally controls their combined expression, hence it would seem that its entire absence as an external appendage must very largely affect the countenance of the whole. For as in landscape gardening, a spire, cupola, monument, or tower of some sort is deemed almost indispensable to the completion of the scene, so no face can be physiognomically in keeping without the elevated open-work belfry of the nose. Dash the nose from Phidias's marble jove, and what a sorry remainder. Nevertheless, Leviathan is of so mighty a magnitude, all his proportions are so stately, that the same deficiency which in the sculpted Jove were hideous in him is no blemish at all. Nay, it is an added grandeur. A nose to a whale would have been impertinent. 
As on your physiognomical voyage you sail round his vast head in your jolly boat, your noble conceptions of him are never insulted by the reflection that he has a nose to be pulled, a pestilent conceit which so often will insist upon obtruding even when beholding the mightiest royal beetle on his throne. In some particulars, perhaps, the most imposing physiognomical view he to be had of the sperm whale is that of the full front of his head. This aspect is sublime. In thought, a fine human brow is like the east when troubled with the morning. In the repose of the pasture, the curled brow of the bull has a touch of the grand in it. Pushing heavy cannon up mountain defiles, the elephant's brow is majestic. Human or animal, the mystical brow is as the great golden seal affixed by the German emperors to their decrees. It signifies, God, done this day by my hand. But in most creatures, nay, in man himself, very often the brow is but a mere strip of alpine land lying along the snow line. Few are the foreheads which, like Shakespeare's or Melanchthon's, rise so high and descend so low that the eyes themselves seem clear, eternal, tideless mountain lakes. And above all them, in the forehead's wrinkles, you seem to track the antlered thoughts descending there to drink as the highland hunters track the snowprints of the deer. But in the great sperm whale, this high and mighty godlike dignity inherent in the brow is so immensely amplified that gazing on it in the full front view, you feel the deity and the dread powers more forcibly than in beholding any other object in living nature. For you see no one point precisely, not one distinct feature is revealed, no nose, eyes, ears, or mouth, no face. He has none. Proper. Nothing but one broad firmament of a forehead pleated with riddles, dumbly lowering with the doom of boats and ships and men. Nor in profile does this wondrous brow diminish, though that way viewed its grandeur does not domineer upon you so. In profile you plainly perceive that horizontal semi-crescented depression in the forehead's middle which in man is Lavater's mark of genius. But how? Genius in the sperm whale? Has the sperm whale ever written a book, spoken a speech? No. His great genius is declaring in his doing nothing particular to prove it. It is, moreover, declared in his pyramidical silence. And this reminds me that had the great sperm whale been known to the young Orient world, he would have been defied by their child Magian thoughts. They defied the crocodile of the Nile because the crocodile is tongueless and the sperm whale has no tongue, or at least it is so exceedingly small as to be incapable of protrusion. If, however, any highly cultured poetical nation shall lure back to their birthright the merry May Day gods of old and livingly enthrone them again in the now egotistical sky, in that now undaunted hill, then to be sure, exalted to Jove's high seat, the great sperm whale shall lord it. Campolian deciphered the wrinkled granite hieroglyphics, but there is no Campolian to decipher the Egypt of every man's and every being's face. Physiognomy, like every other human science, is but a passing fable. If then Sir William Jones, who read in thirty languages, could not read the simplest peasant's face in its profounder and more subtle meanings, how may unlettered Ishmael hope to read the awful Chaldee of the sperm whale's brow? I but put that brow before you. Read it if you can. Chapter 80 The Nut 
If the sperm whale be physiognomically a sphinx, to the phrenologist his brain seems that geometrical circle which is impossible to square. In the full-grown creature, the skull will measure at least 20 feet in length, unhinge the lower jaw, and the side view of the skull is as the side of a moderately inclined plane resting throughout on a level base. But in life, as we have elsewhere seen, this inclined plane is angularly filled up and almost squared by the enormous superincumbent mass of the junk and sperm. At the high end of the skull forms a crater to bed that part of the mass, while under the long floor of this crater, in another cavity seldom exceeding ten inches in length and as many in depth, reposes the mere handful of this monster's brain. The brain is at least twenty feet from his apparent forehead in life. It is hidden away behind its vast outworks, like the innermost citadel within the amplified fortifications of Quebec. So, like a choice casket, it is secreted in him that I have known some whalemen who preemptorily deny the sperm whale has any other brain than that palpable semblance of one formed by the cubic yards of his sperm magazine. Lying in strange folds, courses, and convolutions to their apprehensions, it seems more in keeping with the idea of his general might to regard that mystic part of him as the seat of his intelligence. It is plain, then, that phrenologically the head of this leviathan in the creature's living intact state is an entire delusion. As for his true brain, you can see no indications of it, nor feel any. The whale, like all things that are mighty, wears a false brow to the common world. If you unload his skull of its spermy heaps and then take the rear view of its rear end, which is the high end, you will be struck by its resemblance to the human skull. Beheld in the same situation and from the same point of view, indeed, place this reversed skull, scaled down to the human magnitude, among a plate of men's skulls, and you would involuntarily confound it with them, and, remarking the depressions on one part of its summit in phrenological phrase, you would say, This man had no self-esteem and no veneration. And by those negations, consider along with the fact the affirmative fact of his prodigious bulk and power, you can best form to yourself the truest, though not the most exhilarating conception of what the most exalted potency is. But if from the comparative dimensions of the whale's proper brain you deem it incompatible of being adequately charted, then I have another idea for you. If you attentively regard almost any quadruped spine, you will be struck by the resemblance of its vertebrae to a strung necklace of dwarfed skulls, all bearing rudimental resemblance to the skull proper. It is a German conceit that the vertebrae are absolutely underdeveloped skulls, but the curious external resemblance, I take it the Germans were not the first men to perceive. A foreign friend once pointed it out to me in the skeleton of a foe he had slain, and with the vertebrae of which he was inlaying, as a sort of basso relievo, the beaked prow of his canoe. Now, I consider that the phrenologists have omitted an important thing in not pushing their investigations from the cerebellum through the spinal canal, for I believe that much of a man's character would be found betokened in his backbone. I would rather feel your spine than your skull, whoever you are. A thin joist of a spine never yet upheld a full and noble soul. I rejoice in my spine, as in the firm audacious staff of that flag which I fling half out to the world. Apply this spinal branch of phrenology to the sperm whale. 
His cranial cavity is continuous with the first neck vertebrae, and in that vertebrae, the bottom of the spinal canal will measure 10 inches across, being 8 in height, and of a triangular figure with the base downwards. As it passes through the remaining vertebrae, the canal tapers in size, but for a considerable distance remains in large capacity. Now, of course, this canal is filled with much the same strangely fibrous substance, the spinal cord, as the brain, and directly communicates with the brain. And what is still more, for many feet after emerging from the brain's cavity, the spinal cord remains of an undecreasing girth, almost equal to that of the brain. Under all these circumstances, would it not be unreasonable to survey and map out the whale's spine phrenologically? For, viewed in this light, the wonderful comparative smallness of his brain proper is more than compensated by the wonderful comparative magnitude of his spinal cord. But, leaving this hint to operate as it may with the phrenologists, I would merely assume the spinal theory for a moment, in reference to the sperm whale's hump. This august hump, if I mistake not, rises over one of the larger vertebrae and is, therefore, in some sort the outer convex mold of it. From its relational situation, then, I should call this high hump the organ of firmness or indomitableness of the sperm whale. And that the great monster is indomitable, you will yet have reason to know. Chapter 81. The Pequod Meets the Virgin. The predestined day arrived, and we duly met the ship Jungfrau, Derek de Beer, master of Bremen. At one time, the greatest whaling people in the world, the Dutch and Germans, are now among the least. But here and there, at very wide intervals of latitude and longitude, you still occasionally meet with their flag in the Pacific. For some reason, the Jungfrau seemed quite eager to pay her respects, while yet some distance from the Pequod she rounded to, and dropping a boat, her captain was impelled toward us, impatiently standing in the bows instead of the stern. "'What is he in his hand there?' cried Starbuck, pointing to something wavingly held by the German. "'Impossible! A lamp feeder!' "'Not that!' said Stubb. "'No, no, it's a coffee pot, Mr. Starbuck. He's coming off to make us our coffee. Is the Armin?' Don't see that big tin can there alongside him? That's his boiling water. Oh, that's all right. It's a Yarman. Go along with you, cried Flask. It's a lamp feeder and an oil can. He's out of oil and has come a-begging. However curious it may seem for an oil ship to be borrowing oil on the whale ground, and however much it may inadvertently contradict the old proverb about carrying coals to Newcastle, Yet, sometimes such a thing really happens, and in the present case, Captain Derek de Deer did indubitably conduct a lamp feeder as Flask did declare. As he mounted the deck, Ahab abruptly accosted him without at all heeding what he had in his hand, but in his broken lingo, the German soon evinced his complete ignorance of the white whale, immediately turning the conversation to his lamp feeder and oil can with some remarks touching on his having to turn into his hammock at night in profound darkness, his last drop of Bremen oil being gone and not a single flying fish yet captured to supply the deficiency concluding by hinting that his ship was indeed what in the fishery is technically called a clean one, that is, an empty one, well deserving the name of Jungfrau or Virgin. His necessities supplied, Derek departed, but he had not gained his ship's side when whales were almost simultaneously raised from the mastheads of both vessels, and so eager for the chase was Derek that without pausing to put his oil can and lamp feeder aboard, he slewed round his boat and made after the leviathan lamp feeders. 
Now the game having risen to leeward, he and the other three German boats that soon followed him had considerably the start of the Pequod's keels. There were eight whales, an average pod. Aware of their danger, they were going all abreast with great speed straight before the wind, rubbing their flanks as closely as so many spans of horses in harness. They left a great wide wake as though continually unrolling a great wide parchment upon the sea. Full in this rapid wake, and many fathoms in the rear, swam a huge humped old bull, which by his comparatively slow progress, as well as by the unusual yellowish incrustations overgrowing him, seemed afflicted with the jaundice, or some other infirmity. Whether this whale belonged to the pod in advance seemed questionable, for it is not customary for such venerable leviathans to be at all social. Nevertheless, he stuck to their wake, though indeed their backwater must have retarded him, because the white bone or swell at his broad muzzle was a dashed one, like the swell formed when two hostile currents meet. His spout was short, slow, and laborious, coming forth with a choking sort of gush, and spending itself in torn shreds, followed by strange subterranean commotions in him, which seemed to have egress at his other buried extremity, causing the waters behind him to up-bubble. "'Who's got some paragoric?' said Stubb. "'He has a stomachache, I'm afraid. Lord, think of having half an acre of stomachache. Adverse winds are holding mad Christmas in him, boys. It's the first foul wind I've ever known to blow from astern, but look!' Did ever a whale yaw so before? It must be. He's lost a tiller. As an overladen Indiaman bearing down the Hindustan coast with a deck load of frightened horses, careens, buries, rolls, and wallows on her way, so did this old whale heave his aged bulk, and now and then, partly turning over in his cumbrous rib ends, expose the cause of his devious wake in the unnatural stump of his starboard fin. Whether he had lost that fin in battle or had been born without it, it were hard to say. "'Only wait a bit, old chap, and I'll give you a sling for that wounded arm,' cried Cruel Flask, pointing with the whale line near him. "'Mind you don't sling thee with it,' cried Starbuck. "'Give way, or the German will have him!' With one intent, all the combined rival boats were pointed for this one fish, because not only was he the largest, and therefore the most valuable whale, but he was the nearest to them, and the other whales were going with such great velocity, moreover, as almost to defy pursuit for the time. At this juncture, the Pequod's keels had shot by the three German boats last lowered, but from the great start he had, Derek's boat still led the chase, though every moment neared by his foreign rivals. The only thing they feared was that from being already so nigh to his mark, he would be enabled to dart his iron before they could completely overtake and pass him. As for Derek, he seemed quite confident that this would be the case, and occasionally, with a deriding gesture, shook his lamp feeder at the other boats. The ungracious and ungrateful dog, cried Starbuck. He mocks and dares me with the very poor box I filled for him not five minutes ago. Then in his old intense whisper, Give way, greyhounds, dog to it. I'll tell you what it is, men, cried Stubb to his crew. It's against my religion to get mad, but I'd like to eat that villainous Yarman pole, won't ye? Are you going to let that rascal peachy deal love brandy? A hogshead of brandy, then, to the best man. Come, why don't some of you burst a blood vessel? Who's been, uh, been dropping an anchor overboard? We don't budge an inch. We're becalmed. Hello! Here's a great grass growing in the boat's bottom, and by the lord, the mast must there be budding. There, won't you, boys? Look at that yarman. The short and long of it is, men. Will you spit fire or not? Oh, see the suds he makes, cried Flask, dancing up and down. What a hump! 
Oh, do pile on the beef. Lays like a log. Oh, my lads. Do spring slapjacks and quahogs for supper, you know, my lads. Baked clams and muffins. Oh, do, do spring. He's a hundred barreler. Don't lose him now. Don't, don't. See the armin. Oh, won't you pull for your duff, my lads. Such a sog. Such a sogger. Don't you love sperm? There goes three thousand dollars, men. A bank. A whole bank. The Bank of England. Oh, do, do, do. What's the yarmin about now? At this moment, Derek was in the act of pitching his lamp feeder at the advancing boats, and as his oil can, perhaps with the double view of retarding his rival's way, and at the same time economically accelerating his own by the momentary impetus of the backward toss. The unmannerly Dutch dugger! cried Stubb. Pull now, men, like five thousand line of battle, shiploads, red-haired devils! What do you say, Tarstigo? Are you the man to snap your spine in two and twenty pieces for the honor of old Gayhead? What do you say? I say pull like goddamn, cried the Indian. Fiercely but evenly incited by the taunts of the German, the Pequod's three boats now began ranging almost abreast and so disposed momentarily neared him. In that fine, loose, chivalrous attitude of the headsman when drawing near to his prey, the three mates stood up proudly, occasionally backing the after oarsman with the exhilarating cry of, There she slides now! Hurrah! The white ash breeze! Down with the armen! Sail over him! But so decided an original start had Derek had that, in spite of all their gallantry, he would have proved the victor in this race had not a righteous judgment descended upon him in a crab which caught the blade of his midship oarsman. While this clumsy lubber was striving to free his white ash, and while in consequence Derek's boat was nigh to capsizing and he thundered away at his men in a mighty rage, that was a good time for Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask. With a shout, they took a mortal start forwards and slantingly ranged on the German's quarter, an instant more and all four boats were diagonally in the whale's immediate wake, while stretching for them on both sides was the foaming swell that he made. It was a terrific, most pitiable, and maddening sight. The whale was now going head out and sending his spout before him in a continual tormented jet, while his one poor fin beat his side in an agony of fright. Now to this hand, now to that, he yawned in his faltering flight, and still at every billow that he broke he spasmodically sank in the sea or sideways rolled toward the sky his one beating fin. So have I seen a bird with clipped wing making affrighted broken circles in the air, vainly striving to escape the piratical hawks. But the bird has a voice, and with plaintive cries will make known his fear, but the fear of this vast dumb brute of the sea was chained up and enchanted in him. He had no voice, save that choking respiration through his spinnacle, and this made the sight of him unspeakably pitiable. While still in his amazing bulk, Portcullis' jaw and omnipotent tail, there was enough to appall the stoutest man who so pitied. Seeing now that but a very few moments more would give the Pequod's boats the advantage, and rather than thus be foiled out of his game, Derek chose to hazard what to him must have seemed a most unusually long dart ere the last chance would forever escape. But no sooner had his harpooners stand up for the stroke than all three tigers, Queequeg, Tashtigo, Dago, instinctively sprang to their feet and standing in a diagonal row, simultaneously pointed their barbs and darted over the head of the German harpooner. There, three Nantucket irons entered the whale. Blinding vapors of foam and white fire, the three boats in the first fury of the whale's headlong rush bumped the Germans aside with such force that both Derek and his baffled harpooner were spilled out and sailed over by three flying keels. 
Don't be afraid, my butterboxes, cried Stubb, casting a passing glance upon them as he shot by. You'll be picked up presently, all right. I saw some sharks astern. St. Bernard's dogs, you know, relieve distressed travelers. Hurrah! This is the way to sail now. Every keel a sunbeam. Hurrah! Here we go, like three tin kettles on the tail of a mad cougar. This puts me in mind of fastening to an elephant and a tilbury on a plane. Makes the wheel spokes fly, boys, when you fasten to him that way. And here is the danger of being pitched out, too, when you strike a hill. Hurrah! This is the way a fellow feels when he's going to Davy Jones. All in a rush, down an endless inclined plane. Hurrah! Oh, this one carries the everlasting bale. But the monster's run was a brief one. Giving a sudden gasp, he tumultuously sounded with a grating rush. The three lines flew round the loggerheads with such a force as to gouge deep grooves in them, while so fearful were the harpooners that this rapid sounding would soon exhaust the lines that, using all their dexterous might, they caught repeated smoking turns with the rope to hold on, till at last, owing to the perpendicular strain, the lead-lined chocks of the boats, whence the three ropes went straight down into the blue, the gunnels of the boats were almost even with the water, while the three sterns tilted high in the air, and the whale soon ceasing to sound for some time they remained in that attitude, fearful of expending more line, though the position was a little ticklish. But though boats have been taken down and lost in this way, yet it is this holding on, as it is called, this hooking up by the sharp barbs of his live flesh from the back, this it is that often torments the leviathan into soon rising again to meet the sharp lance of his foes. Yet, not to speak of the peril of the thing, it is to be doubted whether this course is always the best, for it is but reasonable to presume that the longer the stricken whale stays under the water, the more he is exhausted. Because, owing to the enormous surface of him, in a full-grown sperm whale something less than 2,000 square feet, the pressure of the water is immense. We all know that an astonishing atmospheric weight we ourselves stand up under, even here above ground in the air, how vast then the burden of a whale bearing on his back a column of 200 fathoms of ocean. It must at least equal the weight of 50 atmospheres. One whaleman has estimated it at the weight of 20 line of battleships with all their guns and stores and men on board. As the three boats lay there on that gently rolling sea, gazing down into its eternal blue noon, and as not a single groan or cry of any sort, nay, not so much as a ripple or a bubble came up from its depths, what landsman would have thought that beneath all that silence and placidity the utmost monster of the seas was writhing and wrenching in agony? Not eight inches of perpendicular rope were visible at the bows. Seems it credible that by three such thin threads the great leviathan was suspended like the big weight on the eight-day clock? Suspended? And to what? To three bits of board. Is this the same creature of whom it was once so triumphantly said, Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons, or his head with fish spears? The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold, the spear, the dart, nor the habergnon. He esteemeth iron as straw, the arrow cannot make him flee, darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. This creature? This he? Oh, that unfulfillment should follow the prophets, for with the strength of a thousand thighs in his tail, Leviathan had run his head under the mountains of the sea to hide from the Pequod's fish spears. In that sloping afternoon sunlight, the shadows that the three boats sent down beneath the surface must have been long enough and broad enough to shade half Xerxes' army. Who can tell how appalling to the wounded whale must have been such huge phantoms flitting over his head?
Stand by, men, he stirs, cried Starbuck, as the three lines suddenly vibrated in the water, distinctly conducting upwards to them, as by magnetic wires, the life and death throbs of the whale, so that every oarsman felt them in his seat. The next moment relieved in great pain from the downward strain at the bows, the boats gave a sudden bounce upwards as a small ice field will, when a dense herd of white bears are scared from it into the sea. Haul in! Haul in! cried Starbuck again. He's rising! The lines, which hardly an instant before not one hand's breadth could have been gained, were now in long, quick coils flung back, all dripping into the boats, and soon the whale broke water within two ships' lengths of the hunters. His motions plainly denoted his extreme exhaustion. In most land animals, there are certain valves or floodgates in many of their veins, whereby, when wounded, the blood is, in some degree at least, instantly shut off in certain directions. Not so with the whale. One of those peculiarities is to have an entire non-valvular structure of the blood vessels so that when pierced, even by so small a point as a harpoon, a deadly drain is at once begun upon his whole arterial system, and when this is heightened by the extraordinary pressure of water at a great distance below the surface, his life may be said to pour from him in incessant streams." Yet so vast is the quantity of blood in him, and so distant and numerous its interior fountains, that he will keep thus bleeding and bleeding for a considerable period, even as in drought a river will flow whose source is in the wellsprings of far-off and undiscernible hills. Even now, when the bolts pulled upon this whale and perilously drew over his swaying flukes and the lances were darted into him, they were followed by steady jets from the new-made wound which kept continually playing while the natural spout hole in his head was only at intervals, however rapid, sending its affrighted moisture into the air. From this last vent no blood yet came because no vital part of him had thus far been struck. His life, as they significantly call it, was untouched. As the boats now more closely surrounded him, the whole upper part of his form, with much of it that is ordinarily submerged, was plainly revealed. His eyes, or rather the places where his eyes had been, were beheld, as strange misgrown masses gathered in the knot-holes of the noblest oaks when prostrate, so from the points which the whale's eyes had once occupied now protruded blind bulbs, horribly pitiable to see. But pity there was none, for all his old age and his one arm and his blind eyes he must die the death and be murdered in order to light the gay bridles and other merrymakings of men, and also to illuminate the solemn churches that preach unconditional inoffensiveness by all to all. Still rolling in his blood, at last he partially disclosed a strangely discolored bunch or protuberance the size of a bushel low down on the flank. A nice spot, cried Flask. Just let me prick him there once. Avast, cried Starbuck. There's no need of that. But humane Starbuck was too late. At the instant of the dart, an ulcerous jet shot from this cruel wound, and goaded by it into more than sufferable anguish, the whale now spouting thick blood with swift fury blindly darted at the craft, bespattering them and their glorying crews all over with showers of gore, capsizing Flask's boat and marring the bows. It was his death stroke. For by this time, so spent was he by loss of blood that he helplessly rolled away from the wreck he had made, lay panting on his side, impotently flapping with his stumped fin, then, over and over, slowly revolving like a waning world, turned up the white secrets of his belly, lay like a log, and died. It was most piteous, that last expiring spout, 
as when by unseen hands the water is gradually drawn off from some mighty fountain, and with half-stifled melancholy gurglings the spray column lowers and lowers to the ground, so the long-last dying spout of the whale. Soon, while the crews were awaiting the arrival of the ship, the body showed symptoms of sinking with all its treasures unrifled. Immediately by Starbuck's orders, lines were secured to it at different points so that ere long every boat was a buoy, the sunken whale being suspended a few inches beneath them by the cords. By very heedful management, when the ship drew nigh, the whale was transferred to her side and was strongly secured there by the stiffest fluke chains, for it was plain that unless artificially upheld, the body would at once sink to the bottom. It so chanced that almost upon first cutting into him with a spade, the entire length of a corroded harpoon was found embedded in his flesh, on the lower part of the bunch before described. But as the stumps of harpoons are frequently found in the dead bodies of captured whales, with the flesh perfectly healed around them and no prominence of any kind to denote their place, therefore this must needs have been some other unknown reason in the present case fully to account for the ulceration alluded to. But still more curious was the fact of a lance head of stone being found in him, not far from the buried iron, the flesh perfectly firm about it. Who had darted that stone lance? And when? It might have been darted by some Norwest Indian long before America was discovered. What other marvels might have been rummaged out of this monstrous cabinet there is no telling, but a sudden stop was put to further discoveries by the ships being unprecedentedly dragged over sideways into the sea, owing to the body's immensely increasing tendency to sink. However, Starbuck, who had the ordering of affairs, hung on to it to the last— hung on to it so resolutely indeed that when at length the ship would have been capsized if still persisting in locking arms with the body, then, when the command was given to break clear from it, such was the immovable strain upon the timbers to which the fluke chains and cables were fastened that it was impossible to cast them off. Meantime, everything in the Pequod was a slant. To cross to the other side of the deck was like walking up the steep gabled roof of a house. The ship groaned and gasped. Many of the iron inlayings of her bulwarks and cabins were started from their places by the unnatural dislocation. In vain, handspikes and crows were brought to bear upon the immovable fluke chains to pry them adrift from the timber heads. And so low had the whale now settled that the submerged ends could not at all be approached, while every moment whole tons of ponderosity seemed added to the sinking bulk, and the ship seemed on the point of going over. "'Hold on, hold on, Mochi!' said, cried Stubb to the body. "'Don't be such a devil of a hurry to sink! By thundermen, we must do something for go for it! No use frying there avast, I say, with your handspikes, and run one of ye up the prayer chain, and a penknife, and cut the big chains!' Knife! Hey, hey! cried Queequeg, and seizing the carpenter's heavy hatchet, he leaned out of the porthole and, steel to iron, began slashing at the largest fluke chains. But a few strokes, full of sparks, were given when the exceeding strain affected the rest. With a terrific snap, every fastening went adrift, the ship righted, the carcass sank. Now this occasional inevitable sinking of a recently killed sperm whale is a very curious thing, nor has any fisherman yet adequately accounted for it. Usually, a dead sperm whale floats with great buoyancy, with its side or belly considerably elevated above the surface. If the only whales that thus sank were old, meager, and broken-hearted creatures, their pads of lard diminished and all their bones heavy and rheumatic, then you might with some reason assert that this sinking is caused by an uncommon specific gravity in the fish so sinking, consequent upon this absence of buoyant matter in him. 
But it is not so. For young whales, in the highest health and swelling with noble aspirations, prematurely cut off from the warm flush and may of life with all their panting lard about them, even these brawny, buoyant heroes do sometimes sink. Be it said, however, that the sperm whale is far less liable to this accident than any other species. Where one of that sort go down, twenty right whales do. This difference in the species is no doubt imputable to no small degree to the greater quantity of bone in the right whale, his Venetian blinds alone sometimes weighing more than a ton, from the in this encumbrance the sperm whale is wholly free. But there are instances where, after the lapse of many hours or several days, the sunken whale again rises more buoyant than in life. But the reason of this is obvious. Gases are generated in him, he swells to a prodigious magnitude, becomes a sort of animal balloon, a line-of-battle ship could hardly keep him under then. In the shore whaling, on soundings among the bays of New Zealand, when a right whale gives token of sinking, they fasten buoys to him with plenty of rope so that when the body has gone down, they know where to look for it when it shall have ascended again. It was not long after the sinking of the body that a cry was heard from the Pequod's mastheads, announcing that the Jungfrau was again lowering her boats, though the only spout in sight was that of a finback, belonging to a species of uncapturable whales, because of its incredible power of swimming. Nevertheless, the finback spout is so similar to the sperm whales that, by unskillful fishermen, it is often mistaken for it, and consequently Derek and his host were now in valiant chase of this unnearable brute. The virgin crowding all sail made after her four young keels, and thus they all disappeared far to leeward, still in bold, hopeful chase. Oh, many are the finbacks, and many are the derricks, my friend. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at T-U-T-A dot I-O. That's S-A-F-T-P at Tuta dot I-O. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com slash strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.